Good morning again. If you will turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 5. Our sermon text for this morning is Acts 5, verses 17 through 42. Acts 5, 17 to 42. Uh, if you haven't been here, uh, if you have been here, you know that we've been working through the book of Acts uh, week by week over the past couple of months. can't remember when we started. But uh, the past couple months, and uh, we come this week to Acts 5.17. Before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we bow our heads uh, before you again to, to seek your blessing, to seek your face, to seek your mercy and grace in your Son, Jesus. We pray that as we come to your word this morning, that you would... That you would uh, give us understanding by your spirit, give us insight. Most of all, allow us to see Jesus and to be more fully conformed to his image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Acts five seventeen. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this could come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is a man, it will fail." But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. 
So they took his advice, and when they had caught in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. As religious people, I think often our temptation is to just assume that we are on God's side. Or worse, we assume that God is on our side. And it's a, it's a dangerous assumption. I think oftentimes what many non-Christians in America believe about the church today is we, that we just use God to justify our own ends, to justify our own means, no matter how silly or how selfish. This morning, I want to take a moment to ask the church, uh, whose side are you on anyway? It's an important question, but of course it brings up another question, which is, how do you know? Uh, and I think our text shows us this morning by comparing and contrasting a little bit the Sadducees and the religious leaders in Israel with the apostles and the young church. And what we see as we look through uh, this second half of Acts 5 is that being a follower of Jesus shapes at least three things. And you can see them in your outline on the back of your bulletin this morning, if you'd like to follow along. Being a follower of Jesus shapes at least three things. It shapes why you do what you do, shapes how you do what you do, and it shapes what you do. Uh, And uh, shapes our understanding of, of things like success and power and allegiance shapes our motives and our methods and our agenda. And uh, we're going to look at uh, those three things, how, why you do what you do, how you do what you do, and what you do. Um, but, but first we need to step back and, and look again at the story. You know, Jesus had a, a three-year uh, ministry, public ministry on earth, which ended at the cross. He was rejected uh, by the Jewish leaders who handed him over to Rome and asked for his execution. Jesus died, was put into a tomb, the stone was rolled over the entrance, and it looked like Jesus' little uh, religious club was over, his three-year ministry a failure. But God highly exalted him, and raising him from the dead, he seated Jesus at the Father's right hand on the throne of God in heaven. Yet before ascending into heaven, Jesus told his apostles that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they would be his witnesses. And that's exactly uh, what we see happen in the book of Acts. Uh, Jesus sends the Spirit, the apostles receive the Spirit, and the early Christians receive the Spirit at Pentecost, and they began to bear witness uh, to the resurrection of Jesus. Well, the problem was the religious leaders who were in charge in that day, uh, the Sadducees, at least some of those who helped put Jesus to death, uh, they didn't believe in even the possibility of resurrection, Uh, much less that Jesus had, in fact, been raised from the dead. And so these religious leaders, they arrested Peter and John and charged them not to speak any more in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John, this is back in chapter 4, Peter and John replied, "...whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard." Well, then they were freed. Uh, The whole church prays for boldness, that they might continue to speak uh, the word of the gospel. God answers their prayer by filling them with the Holy Spirit so that they continue to speak the word. 
The people uh, around the apostles and the early Christians uh, hold them in high esteem, and uh, many more people join the church. Well, the religious leaders, uh, again, are still bothered by this. In fact, we're told at the beginning of chapter, or the, the, the beginning of our text this morning, we're told that they were jealous. They were filled with jealousy. And uh, so they arrest the apostles again. They throw them in jail, and an angel comes in the night in verse 19. An angel, which, ironically, the Sadducees didn't believe in angels either. So an angel comes in the night and frees the apostles and commands them to go back to the temple and keep speaking. The apostles obey. They they return to the temple. They continue to teach. And uh, there's this humorous little scene where the next morning the religious leaders, they gather to put the apostles on trial, as it were. They send for them, but they're nowhere to be found. Until someone comes and uh, says to them in verse 25, Uh, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And uh, you can kind of imagine how the religious leaders felt at that point, what they were thinking. Uh, The very thing that the apostles were arrested for in the first place, they escape somehow, and they go right back to it. And so they send the guards to bring them to the council, uh, but the guards go and bring them back, but not by force because they're afraid of the people. Uh, They come before the council. There's this long dialogue, and the end result is the apostles are beaten and warned and released. What do they do at the very end of the chapter there? They rejoice. Uh, They rejoice for being counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And every day and in every place and all the time, they just keep preaching and teaching that the Christ is Jesus. Well, what are we to take from this story? We're going to see a contrast between the Sadducees on the one hand, the religion of the Sadducees, and the disciples, and specifically the apostles on the other hand, beginning with why you do what you do. How how would you define success? What is it uh, that would have to take place, that you would have to accomplish in order to look back at the end of your life and think, I did it, I succeeded? I I achieved my goals, whatever they might be. Well, fundamentally, uh, there are two great motives in life. And it's not not an issue of of religious or irreligious, right? It's not an issue of of that, but really two different ways of doing religion, uh, two different ways of doing life as a whole. And uh, the the question is, am I using my life, am I using my religion, Uh, am I using my my work, my play, my everything, am I using it to glorify myself, or is that my goal, is that my motive, is that that how I define success, if I uh, do well in life in some way, or do I see my life as a way to glorify Jesus? Being followers of Jesus shapes our definition of success to be about Him and not about us. Well, the religious leaders in uh, the Apostles' day were jealous. Why were they jealous? They are the religious leaders. They had oversight of the temple, uh, the very temple itself, uh, the very place that man was reconciled to God uh, through the sacrifices, the place of sacrifice and forgiveness, uh, the place that God had caused His name to dwell, the place of religious authority. Right? They were in charge of that place. They oversaw sort of the official religion of Israel. But here come the apostles, and uh, just like Jesus, by the way, the popular vote kind of goes with them. And uh, the, the people are joining them by the multitude, we were just told uh, a few verses earlier. And uh, 
these particular religious leaders, the Sadducees, uh, Luke tells us in Acts 23 that the Sadducees believe that there is no resurrection, no angel, and no spirit. And so here are the apostles gaining a following, gaining a following by teaching that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so they're jealous. They're upset. They're angry. And uh, they, they ultimately, they see their religion as a means of their own self-promotion, right? Jealousy shows their true concern, doesn't it? Uh, their concern is about gaining followers for themselves versus these apostles who are, who are taking people away from them. And when other people uh, begin to gain this following, they see that as a competition, right? So the apostles uh, had what they wanted. The apostles had the, the recognition, had the crowds, at least for a time. Uh, now, the word jealous uh, can actually also be translated zealous, uh, and so it could mean that they were zealous for their religion. It could mean that they were zealous for the temple. It could mean they were zealous for God, even. It's his temple, after all. It could mean that they were zealous for the old ways. Uh, but either way, it seems pretty clear, as you look at these guys, that their religious zeal is, is masking a zeal for themselves. Uh, the old ways keep them in power. The temple is their temple. The apostles are breaking with their religious ideals and gathering a following to boot. This is not good. All of this means that their ultimate motive here is their own self-glorification, right? Their self-promotion, you know, they want to be uh, center, not the apostles, right? Their self-promotion is to the end of their self-glorification. I want you to see how awesome I am, and if you're busy seeing how awesome somebody else is, right, then that takes away from me. That's the way they're, they're looking at this. Their idea of success is, is making a name for themselves. That's why they're jealous. That's why they're angry, because the apostles are taking people away from them, leading people astray. The apostles, on the other hand, have a very different motive, uh, a very different definition of success. Look at the end of the chapter. Uh, the apostles are beaten and, and warned not to teach in the name of Jesus, and then they're let go. And then in verse 41, we read this. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The Sadducees, on the one hand, are seeking honor. The apostles suffer dishonor. But are they jealous? Are they angry? Right? Are they upset about this? No. Why not? They are overjoyed that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. See, what is their definition of success here? What is their motive? What are, is their goal? They love the name of Jesus. They want to bring honor to the name of Jesus. They, they don't seek their own name, but that of Jesus. And their suffering, far from being a source of discontent, far from being a sign of failure, as we often think about pain and trouble in life, it's actually a sign of their success. They were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, if your definition of success includes your own personal glory or comfort or well-being, suffering and rejection is, is failure. You haven't made it. But for the apostles, success was the glory of Jesus, even at great personal cost. The Sadducees want honor. They want self-glory. Now, in, in one sense, that's actually natural, right? Uh, Proverbs 22 says, A good name is more precious than silver or gold. It's natural to want a good name. It's natural, but it's not ultimate. And if self-glory is your idea of success, right, it will control you. It will, it, will, it will enslave you. It will own you as it did them. How can you be free from that drive that drove the Sadducees? 
Well, uh, you may remember, thinking way back to creation, you have Adam who's made actually glorious. He's known in all creation as the image of God, right? the ruler on the earth. And yet with the fall, that image was tarnished, and Adam gained the title of sinner instead of ruler. And I think humankind ever since has sought to gain a name for ourselves. We've sought to regain what was lost, some bit of glory for ourselves. And we do that in all kinds of silly ways, right? mostly through comparison. Uh, we, we say things like, my religion is better than yours, or my theology, my worship, my church is better than yours. Uh, I'm stronger, I'm faster, I'm smarter. Look at what I've read, look at what I can do, look at what I know. Right? We're relentless in trying to gain a name for ourselves. I think, though, about Jesus and what he did. Right? He, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He laid aside his glory by taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus suffered dishonor. He was mocked and spat upon and ridiculed. He was beaten. He was paraded through the streets. He was nailed to a piece of wood. Why would he do that? Well, you know, glory for for creatures always comes through submission. Our sin cost us our created glory on earth, and Adam found shame, not glory through the tree. So Jesus goes to another tree to take our shame. And yet in the resurrection, he finds not shame but glory. He received the name that is above every name, that, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right? Jesus receives through the cross shame at first, but shame not ultimately, but ultimately glory and a name that is above every name. Well, what does that mean for us? Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made Jesus uh, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, see we've lost our righteousness in Adam. Uh, as a result, we receive shame and dishonor. But oftentimes, uh, but for those who believe in Jesus, we receive his righteousness, his honor. You know, oftentimes people boast in who they know, right, or who their friends are, uh, or who they sat next to that one time on the bus when they were visiting that town. Um, why, why do we do that? Well, glory is contagious, isn't it? There's a glory by relation. And uh, through faith in Jesus, through union with him, we receive his glory, the glory of his righteousness. So that, that's, that's why we don't have to act like the Sadducees, right? That's, that's why we are free from having to use religious zeal to mask a zeal for ourselves, that's why we're free from self-promotion and self-glorification, because in Christ we have received righteousness and glory. If we belong to Jesus, that, that should shape why we do what we do. It shapes our motives. It shapes how we define success, because we, we pursue not our own glory through comparison. I'm better than, smarter than, stronger than, taller than, whatever. But we pursue the glory of Jesus, the glory found in the resurrection, the glory that we uh, find by faith in him. Of course, it shapes not only why we do what we do, but how we do it. Uh, Being followers of Jesus should shape our understanding of power. Uh, There are two types of power in this passage. Uh, There's the powers of this age and the power of the age to come. And notice the power of the Sadducees, right? What do they do? They arrest the apostles, 
They threaten them. They beat them. They have this this power of physical force. And yet this power ultimately uh, is limited. It's weak even. Notice verse 26. When they go to arrest the apostles again for the second time, uh, the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. See, the powers of this age are always subject to the powers of this age. If I'm smart, uh, there's always someone smarter. If I'm strong, there's always going to be someone stronger. If I'm pretty, there's always going to be someone prettier. The powers of this age aren't bad, but they aren't ultimate either. The religious leaders put the apostles in jail, but the angel of the Lord brings them out. The religious uh, leaders threaten the apostles to stop teaching in the name of Jesus, but their teaching fills Jerusalem. And what stands in contrast to, to the worldly powers of the religious leaders here is the power of the Spirit through the teaching of the Word. The religious leaders do everything they can to stop the apostles. The apostles simply proclaim Jesus in the power of the Spirit. And what happens? Multitudes flock to Jesus, both men and women, we're told a few verses earlier. And the real impotence of the religious leaders is seen in the last verse, verse 42, where we read, And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. See, no matter what the religious leaders do, the gospel message keeps going out. Every day, in every place, in public and private, nonstop, without ceasing. You see, what is powerful in the world's eyes, here physical force, right, political power, uh, the power of the guards, is ultimately weakness. The powers of this age aren't bad, but they they aren't ultimate either. On the other hand, what looks weak and foolish is actually powerful. The apostles preach a crucified and risen Messiah. Uh, This is a message that Paul says elsewhere is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, it's the message of the cross that changes hearts and changes lives and draws men to Jesus. It's this word that is unstoppable in Acts. True authority, true power, is not the the power that the Sadducees had over the temple, but the power that the apostles had in the message of the gospel. The the locus of God's saving power has, has changed from the Old Testament to the New from a place to a proclamation, or, or better than that, from a place to a person being proclaimed to Jesus. Right? You ask the Sadducees, where is God at work? They would answer, in the temple, the temple that we oversee, in the sacrifices. You ask the apostles, where is God at work? And they would answer, through the risen Christ, by the Spirit, through the proclamation of the risen Jesus. To God's power is coming forth, not from some earthly temple, but from the heavenly temple where Jesus sits, enthroned at the Father's right hand. You may remember Jesus said at one point, uh, the hour is coming uh, when uh, we will worship not uh, on this place, not in that place, not in this temple, not in that temple. Right? But he said, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Meaning that, that we would worship God in the Holy Spirit, which was poured out at Pentecost, 
and in the true reality to which the Old Testament system pointed, namely Jesus himself, to worship in him, not in, not in a building, not in a temple, but to worship in Jesus. See, the locus of God's saving power has changed from a place to a person, to Jesus himself. Jesus being God in the flesh is the true temple. Jesus being the sacrifice for sin is the place where forgiveness is offered through the shedding of blood. Jesus being given a name that is above every name is the place where God has caused his name to dwell because Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the message of Jesus and faith in his name that brings us his saving power. Now, of course, you you look at the life of Jesus, and uh, Jesus didn't always look powerful in his life. Uh, He he didn't come with a sword, and some were confused by that, even John the Baptist. Uh, Though he does come with authority, you may remember his teaching had authority. He spoke with power. Diseases and demons obeyed his every word. And yet Jesus also comes in weakness. He comes to suffer. He comes to die. And yet through death, he overcomes death. Through weakness, he overcomes weakness. And he's raised from the dead in power. Jesus' death looked like failure. And yet through it, he received a name that is above every name. Jesus' death looked like weakness. But through it, he received the powers of the age to come in the resurrection. See, if you ask the question, how how do you know what side you're on? On the one hand, you know, lots of people are religious. The Sadducees were religious but they were living in opposition to God. So how do you know, right? How how do you know one way or another? Well, one way is figuring out how how you define success, right? Is, Is, am I living for the glory of me? Am I living for the glory of Jesus? Another way is seeing what, what power we rely on to get there. Um, There's nothing wrong with the powers of this age, right? We can use our intellect and our strength, social and political clout, right? Whatever it is, we can use those for the glory of Jesus. Um, The question is, am I trusting in those things? Or am I trusting in God's word and the power of his spirit? And you might think, okay, how do I know which one of those things I'm trusting in? Um, Well, on the one hand, the moment your, your method, whatever that is, becomes more important than the message of the gospel, you're in trouble, Uh, The moment uh, the open proclamation of the truth becomes coercion, uh, the moment we begin to manipulate others or or yell or sneak or flatter or bribe, right? the moment we begin to misuse the powers of this age, uh, the moment we begin to try to accomplish spiritual ends, not just uh, through the means of this world, but through worldly-minded means, right? Uh, The means that take the power of the Spirit out of the equation, Uh, The moment we take God out of the picture and act as if everything depends on me and my actions, then we're in trouble. God doesn't need us to be strong or rich or cool or beautiful or intellectually stimulating. If we are, that's great. Offer those things to God, lay them at his feet, and ask him to use them. But of course, unless the Lord builds the house, uh, those who labor, labor in vain. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. God wants us to go out in weakness, admitting our faults and our failures, recognizing that even our strengths are fruitless apart from the blessing of Jesus, begging God to work through us to his glory, being faithful to his word, trusting his spirit to work. At that point, again, we're free to use whatever powers of this age God has given us, whatever opportunities, whatever talents, whatever strengths God has given us, but we use them in reliance upon the spirit to accomplish God's purposes in the world. So whose side are you on anyway, right? How do you define success? 
Why do you do what you do? Are you seeking the glories of this age or the glory of Jesus? How do you define power? How, how, do, you, how do you do what you do, right? Uh, do you rely on the powers of this age to get you ahead in life, money and beauty and strength and intellect? Are you trying to impress people with what you know, what you do, what you think, what you've read? Or are you relying on God's word and God's spirit, trusting in his word, seeking his spirit to be at work in you and through you? Well, third thing, being a follower of Jesus is, is not just seen in, in why we do what we do and how we, what we do what we do, but also in what we do. Um, you know, I, I am a firm believer that we need to look at our motives, right? That, that, uh, that where our heart is in what we do matters. But sometimes people get a hold of that idea and they take it to mean that what you do doesn't matter as long as your heart is in the right place. Well, being followers of Jesus uh, shapes our ideas about allegiance. And fundamentally, there are only two ways of living, in obedience to God or in opposition to Him. There's no middle ground, right? Luke uh, tells the story in such a way to highlight that the apostles are living in obedience to God. Uh, the, the, the religious leaders are living in opposition to him. Again, uh, the difference here is not between religious and unreligious. Everybody in this story is religious. The difference is in two ways of doing religion. Notice the apostles are arrested and put in prison. They're released by an angel of the Lord, and uh, uh, the word of God is not bound, right, even by the, the prison walls here. And this angel tells them to go back to the temple where they were arrested in the first place and keep doing what they were doing to get arrested in the first place. He doesn't say, you're free, run and hide. They're not freed for their own comfort. They are freed for the sake of the kingdom. What do the apostles do? They go to the temple. As soon as the doors open, they begin to teach. Eventually, a captain of the guard comes to arrest them. Afraid of the crowds, he asks them to come quietly. And uh, the apostles could have resisted arrest, and the crowds might likely have taken their side. But what do they do? They go willingly. They go obediently. Uh, they go freely. They come before the leaders who remind them, in, uh, the religious leaders who remind them in verse 28, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And what is Peter's response in the next verse, verse 29? The apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. And then at the end of verse 32, at the end of Peter's uh, little speech, what does he emphasize again? He emphasizes that, that uh, God gives his spirit to those who obey him. See, the apostles are, are nothing if not obedient to God's word. They, they teach in obedience to the angel of the Lord. They, they, they are obedient to the civil authority who arrests them falsely even. Uh, they emphasize that they must obey God rather than men. But what about the religious leaders in this passage? Well, they're the ones who put Jesus to death. Uh, the one God exalted, they crucified on a tree. Peter uh, does charge them with Jesus' blood in verse 30, as they say. And now they want to kill the apostles, right? It hasn't stopped. It wasn't one isolated mistake back putting Jesus on the tree. No, they want to kill the apostles now. And uh, Gamaliel, a Pharisee, not a Sadducee, is a bit more pragmatic. Um, the Pharisees actually did believe in the resurrection. And maybe he was struck by the apostles' teaching. We don't know. But in the end, he says, let's not oppose them. 
Uh, if this movement is not from God, it will die. If it is from God, we might be found opposing God. And uh, so what does the council do? They, they don't kill the apostles. That, that was good, right? They release them, but they also beat them and charge them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. See, the, the religious leaders, they're afraid of opposing God. So rather than kill the apostles, they only beat them and uh, warn them not to teach in the name of Jesus. And so are they, are they religious? Of course, right? No one was more religious than the Sadducees. They had oversight of the temple itself. But for all their religion, they, they are still unwilling to admit their sin, admit their rebellion, admit their failure. They oversaw the temple itself, the place where repentance was supposed to happen. But they refused to repent. They're still opposed to the one thing they really needed, which was Jesus. So Jesus himself, okay, uh, you, you look at him, what do we see? We see a, a person who was obedient to the point of death. He sought to glorify his father. He uh, entrusted his own name to the father. He experienced shame and disgrace, the appearance of failure in the work the father gave him to do. But Jesus trusted in the promises of his father and he rose from the dead in the power of the spirit. And God rewarded his obedience by exalting Jesus to the Father's right hand and giving him the name that is above every name, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You see, there are these two ways of living, two ways of, of relating to God, using our religious zeal as a mask of zeal for self or pursuing the glory of God, trusting in worldly powers to accomplish our own ends or trusting in the power of the Spirit to work through his word to accomplish his purposes, living in obedience to King Jesus or living in opposition to him. Jesus says at one point in Luke eleven twenty three, whoever is not with me is against me. There are only two ways of relating to Jesus, right? Obedience with him, worship, submission, delight, or opposition. Now, someone might say, I, I don't oppose Jesus, right? I'm, I'm not against him. I just don't follow him. It's good for you if you want to do that, but it's just not for me. Okay, really? Well, then, then whom do you follow? Most Americans, I think, would say, well, I don't follow anybody. Right? Don't follow anybody. But, of course, that's not true. Everybody follows someone. Something guides you. Most of us follow ourselves, right? We follow our own heart. And so you're, you're not opposed to Jesus. You're not against him. But instead of following him, you follow yourself, Instead of seeking his kingdom, you seek your own. Instead of seeking his glory, his name, his reputation, you seek your own name, your own glory, your own reputation. Well, Peter tells us God has raised up this Jesus as leader and savior, as Lord and Christ. And Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. There's not room uh, enough. Uh, there's only room enough for one king in the universe. And so you can serve King Jesus or you can try to set up your own rival kingdom. Now, of course, by obedience to Jesus, when we talk about this, I don't mean perfection, right? Uh, we, we want to obey Jesus, but we struggle. Our hearts are divided. Um, if we really want the glory of Jesus and, and are trusting in his power, we will live in obedience. But this is the daily battle of faith, isn't it? This is the daily struggle to put our eyes on the glory of Jesus and not on the glories of this world. Uh, to trust not what is seen, but what is unseen, the power of the Spirit, to trust God's Word. That is our struggle. And yet, nevertheless, uh, allegiance to Jesus, our allegiance to Jesus, is demonstrated in tangible acts of obedience. 
Where can you step out in obedience to Jesus today? And as you read the scriptures, as you're sensitive to the Spirit, where is God calling you to obey Him right now? Right where you live, right where you work, right? In your family, in your school, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. Remember Jesus, right? Who in obedience to His Father laid aside His glory, went to the cross in weakness and shame, and God raised Him up from the dead in power and glory. These are the words of life, Peter says. In Jesus, we find both repentance and forgiveness. And so his glory is the only glory that matters. Trust him to work through his word and spirit and live in obedience to him, waiting and watching expectantly for him to display his glory in your life. Let's pray. Our Father, we... We trust you. Uh, we trust you. Not, not ourselves, not our ingenuity, uh, not our ability to figure it all out and put it all together, uh, not our ability to make life happen the way we want. We trust you, uh, your power, your spirit, your word. Help us to live in light of these things. Help us to live in obedience to Jesus, to, to show our allegiance to our King, the way that we live our lives. Father, we fail often, daily, we stumble, uh, we disobey, we do stupid, knuckleheaded things. Father, we pray that you would uh, empower us by your Spirit to look to you by faith, to see your glory, to see the power of your Spirit, and to walk in obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.